after that, I would like to uh, go back to the 17th century and look at um, some representations of Ethiopia in early modern European philosophy that I think uh, are part of the uh, broad historical backstory to what Justo Durbino was up to and ultimately to what um, early uh, 20th century uh, Ethiopian studies um, uh, look, looked like, the, the eventual shape uh, they took. So that is my plan. Uh, we'll see how far I get. Now, as to forgeries, uh, when I first encountered Zara Yaqub, uh, it was through uh, the work of Anaïs Guillon, uh, and I was utterly uh, 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 kind of impressed and uh, convinced by Anaïs's work. Uh, and um, I kind of got found my way to Zara Yaqub in the first instance, supposing that this was a forgery. Um, so I came here and I think my views are moving from decidedly anti-realist to decidedly agnostic. I don't think they'll ever be anything other than agnostic uh, because again, I'm not in a position to, uh, to, to study these uh, on my own. Um, but I do wanna talk about what it would mean if uh, 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 these were written for the first time in the 19th century. So this is a hypothetical reflection. Um, now, uh, forgery sounds like a bad word. Uh, it sounds like something you shouldn't do. Uh, but I think we need to consider, at least in the present context, um, uh, uh, whether that's really so, and we need to dare to uh, defend the indefensible. Um, I'll start out by saying that I myself have written some forgeries, uh, and I think it is an edifying exercise. Um, it's something that uh, can help you, among other things, to understand absolutely everything about the author you are trying to uh, imitate, right? Um, and it seems to me also that in the era of orchid IDs and other, so to speak, elements meant to rigidly designate or to anchor our authorial identity uh, uh, in the context of very culturally distinctive, and I would argue uh, deviant ideas about intellectual property, um, it's a big mistake to suppose that these are in play always and everywhere. And indeed in the last talk, we heard some reasons why they were not in play in uh, the medieval European Latin tradition. I wanted to start, let me see, how do I move the PowerPoint? No, it's not really. Oh, there we go. Okay, I wanted to start with just a kind of working our way into this. A very interesting case a few years back um, was this 1980 volume edited by Amelie Oxenberg Rorty, the, um, uh, the, 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 the prominent scholar, um, in which it turned out that uh, 37 years uh, before this was discovered, she published one of her, uh, one of the chapters in this volume that she edited under the name Leila Tov Ruach, 
Uh, and it turns out that this was Amelie Oxenberg-Rorty. So she had two contributions in her own edited volume. And OUP uh, felt the need to um, put an erratum note on their websites, um, uh, on the website for the book um, and to clarify that this was wrong, right? Um, now, was it wrong or was it playful? And I was, I, I remember being rather surprised by some of our colleagues in the philosophical community um, kind of saying tisk tisk about this as if um, she had uh, done something uh, uh, that she ought not to have done rather than trying to kind of cultivate a better, more appreciative understanding of maybe some of the limitations she was facing in her effort to get her own ideas out to the world. And also some of the, yeah, indeed ludic spirit she might have brought to, um, uh, to her own work as a scholar. Um, so, Sorry, I'm still not getting the hang of this. Okay, so um, let's look at some other examples. Here's a letter uh, from Joan of Arc um, uh, that I'll tell you more about in a minute. Here is a letter from Charlemagne of all people. Um, here is a letter from Vercingetorix. Um, some of you might, sorry, it's missing an R. Some of you might know where these are coming from. It's a very famous case. Um, Denis Vranlucas, uh, one of the great 19th century forgers. Um, uh, there's a wonderful 2004 article by the historian Ken Alder, uh, published in Critical Inquiry, um, that Ken really lovely presents in Critical Inquiry uh, as a translation from the French of a prison letter of Denis Vranlucas that seeks to vindicate himself. So Ken Alder is perpetuating the fraud even further. But it, what we do know about Vranlucas is that during his trial for trying to pass off these letters, he also tried to, tried to pass off works of uh, letters of uh, Jesus Christ, <laughs> Alexander the Great. I mean, he was really, really pushing it. Um, and it's surprising he was able to continue for as long as he did. But we, this is, you know, Alder mixes truth with fiction in his um, in his translation, but um, part of the truth is that during his trial, Vranlucas um, uh, gave a very interesting defense of his practice, and part of part of what he wanted to say was that you all should be thankful. I'm filling in history's gaps. Um, I, am, um, I am making history make more sense. I'm making history more compelling than it is from the meager uh, traces that have actually been left to us. Um, and everyone should read this. It's a very, it's a very touching um, uh, 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 account of his own understanding of what he was doing. And you might say, that the real crime um, is not necessarily uh, 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 the, the, you know, writing, writing a letter from Alexander the Great, but rather bilking people out of money for it, right? And this is, I think, a really key issue when we're thinking about 
um, uh, uh, what exactly the transgression is. Um, is it uh, simply writing in the style of another person or is it um, writing in the style of another person for your own ill-gotten gains, right? And these are two very different things you might say. Indeed, at the limit case of writing in the style of another person, um, we have uh, uh, a practice that looks a lot more like, say, uh, working in an atelier under a master painter, right? Where you imitate the master, not because you are, um, you are uh, uh, trying to defraud people by convincing them you're someone you're not, but simply because you, um, sorry, this keeps going off. Um, uh, but because you want to, you want to become uh, great like the master, right? And in fact, this is what students do, right? This is what it is to learn Latin, to com compose an essay in the style of Cicero or poetry in the style of Virgil. And over time, it's not at all surprising that uh, that that there are uh, authorship disputes because you know we learn by imitation. Um, also, I wanted to. Sorry, I don't know why this keeps going off. Um, I wanted to, I, I guess I just need to keep touching the touchpad. Um, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Give this a little wiggle. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't have the thing on here. Um, well, sorry, I, I don't know how to stop this. Uh, but also, I think we need to consider more broadly, uh, uh, you know, a number of practices. This is a famous uh, work some uh, of a 16th century uh, Spanish um, Catholic author, uh, sometimes known as the Falsos Cronicones, um, in which uh, uh, Higuera argues for the, um, the antiquity of Christianity in the Iberian Peninsula and shows how by the first or second century, um, there were already uh, saints and, uh, and uh, Christian um, um, presence in Iberia. Um, when this was shown not to be true, and you know, a lot has been written about this, um, the response was you know, mixed, but there was a reaction against the supposed exposure of this thing and almost a general sort of um, appreciation of Higuera's great feat, right? Um, that indeed he did something more than simply chronicle the antiquity of Iberian Christianity. He conjured it into being, right? So this was an act of literal poiesis, right? Which is in a certain respect more impressive than what historians are capable of, of, of pulling off. All right, so um, now uh, moving forward, uh, uh, Anais mentioned yesterday the Graeber and Bengrove book, which deals extensively um, with uh, this work of La Honton, who was Leibniz's close friend who died in Hanover within a few months of Leibniz, who also spent um, a, a good portion of his life in what is today Michigan, um, and uh, went back to Europe and published in Amsterdam uh, the famous um, dialogues um, with a savage of America, whom he calls Adario, and who is um, 
uh, better known uh, in the scholarship today as Kondaryonk. Uh, that's how Graeber and Vengrov identify him. And uh, uh, you know, there's broad uh, consensus that this person existed um, and also a, a, a general agreement that what La Honton was doing was um, largely in in invention, right? Uh, in this, uh, the, the dialogues fit within a genre of uh, that, that, that you could also place um, Montesquieu's Persian letters and any number of other works of the 18th century in which you uh, uh, kind of project um, uh, onto a largely fictional foreigner, um, usually from the East, but not in this case, um, a kind of sharp, um, but also naive eye uh, uh, on, um, on the cultures and values and mores of Europe. So this is another um, uh, kind of practice, you might say authorial practice of invention that is somewhere between the fraud and let's say the, um, the, the text for, um, for, for, for moral instruction. Um, now, moving forward to the 19th century, then I wanted to emphasize something that no one else has emphasized yet, but I think might be rather important uh, thinking about what's going on in the 19th century. And that is all over the place, um, we have the construction of national literary traditions um, within the context of, let's say, the forging of national identity, right, in a way that um, that, that emerged in, in, in France in particular in the century earlier, but by the 19th century has spread to Finland and Romania and countless other places where uh, there's kind of an imperative to find a national poet in particular, right? Get a national poet, build some statues of the guy, and, um, and we can be sure that we are a true nation worthy of sovereign independence, right? But in some cases, as in the case of Finland, if you can't find a national poet, what do you do? Well, you send out a, a, a folklorist um, to gather materials and to turn it into a text that then becomes um, uralt, right? That then becomes ancient, even though its textual history only dates to a precise moment of the 19th century. Now, I don't want to say that exactly the same thing is going on in Ethiopia, but I do want to say that the 19th century is a period in which, let's say, um, national identity is being congealed into texts for political reasons. Um, and we see some cases that are outright frauds. I think this one is a really interesting, uh, interesting uh, case. Some of you might have heard of it. Samuel Constantin de Raffinesque was a um, Hard to, hard to place him, but broadly speaking French, but spent most of his life um, studying Native Americans um, in, uh, in uh, the United States. In 1830, he creates a text called the Wallam Olum that is supposedly a kind of hieroglyphic um, uh, cosmology of the Lenape people. And this was only debunked in the 1990s by, uh, by, by a graduate student, um, but, if you read Raffinesque, it's 
arguably very similar to, to reading Lundvot. Uh, it's an effort to, let's say, conjure into textual uh, material being uh, his sense of what this tradition is. Um, and uh, uh, he doesn't explicitly say, I made this all up, um, but he also doesn't explicitly say, um, uh, this is something the Lenape people wrote down for me, right? Um, and I think, in fact, we see a lot of this in the 19th century from Finland to Kentucky to uh, perhaps Ethiopia. Um, all right, so that's a little bit of reflection on, um, on, on, on forgery. Um, for what it's worth, I want to try to tie it in now to uh, uh, maybe a, a novel angle on um, the history of Ethiopian studies in Europe, in the hope that it will um, it will uh, shine some light for us. Um, so some of you know that I that I have worked myself on an African philosopher, but a very very different kind of African philosopher, one whose existence is not at all disputed, um, uh, uh, and one who uh, spent his entire philosophical career in Germany, writing in Latin, um, and in his extant works, never once acknowledges his African identity. The only place his African identity is stressed is on the title pages of his dissertations, um, where it says, uh, Amo Afer, uh, 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 which is, you know, you might think is, is, is something noteworthy, but this is just a convention. You also see, you know, Johannes Meiner aus Meissen and whatever else, um, you know, you always tell where the student comes from in their dissertations, right? So, um, there's a lot to be said about Amo. He was born um, in what is now Ghana, uh, probably around 1703. Uh, we have the first trace of him in Wolfenbüttel in 1707, um, so very young, uh, and uh, he does his principal philosophical work in the 1730s. Uh, now, this is the, um, this is the, the, the uh, Deacon's Register from 1727 at the University of Halle. You'll notice here it says Antonius Williamus uh, Cognominatus Amo, and then Aetiops, right? So the Ethiopian, Amo the Ethiopian. And this is not surprising. This is conventional. There's a very, um, very uncertain geography in the early modern German imagination. Um, and he is variously called the Ethiopian and the Moor. Um, almost interchangeably, though there are two, uh, two, you know, there are distinct, there are subtle connotations uh, for both of those. Now you'll also see further to the right, ab aximo in Guinea, right? So he comes from the town of Axim, and this is important. Here is um, the, the, the rector of Hala praising him in his dissertation uh, in which um, uh, he's born, uh, uh, born in furthest Africa, facing the east or something like that. Why is he facing the east, um, even if he's from the far west of Africa? Is this just a very, very loose usage of Orient? 
Well, various theories have popped up. Paulin Untongi suggests that the Germans were confusing Axim and Aksum, right? Aksum, the, I guess we should usually spell A-K-S-U-M, being the ancient spot of Ethiopian learning, um, much better known in early 18th century Germany than, uh, than uh, a tiny fortress in uh, Guinea or Ghana, right? Um, so again, you have this sort of conflation. Uh, and also, uh, Amo's arrival in Germany fits within a, a, a very curious moment of what you might call Philo-Africanism, um, but more particularly uh, Ethiopiaphilia or something like that. Um, and this is the case in particular uh, for the Duke um, who uh, 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 arranges for Amo's arrival uh, in Germany from Amsterdam, um, who long before Amo was born um, wrote um, a libretto uh, for a ballet Ballets had librettos back then uh, uh, that uh, concerns a certain Andromeda uh, who is a royal girl, a royal maiden from Ethiopia, the daughter of Cepheus and Cassiope. Uh, um, and this, uh, this is full of kind of effusive poetic um, uh, 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 praise um, for Ethiopia in general and for the moral character of Ethiopians. And he continues this in a long multi-volume, multi-year novel called The Roman Octavia, which, um, uh, which takes up themes from the ancient um, uh, author Heliodorus's Ethiopian romance um, and describes this convention of sending um, children from the Roman Empire to Ethiopia to study under Ethiopian sages um, and uh, who were often in this tradition uh, described as gymnosophists, right? Um, uh, now commonly be have believed to have been Indian giants um, referenced in, in Greek antiquity, right? So there's a lot of confusion about who the gymnosophists are, um, but uh, 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 the, they're commonly placed in Ethiopia, and Ethiopia is commonly represented as a um, as a place to go uh, for philosophical training. Um, and this seems to have significantly influenced Amo's life path, right? The fact that he could be passed off as an Ethiopian. Um, to some extent may have predestined him for uh, a life as a philosopher. Um, finally, I, I just wanted to mention that this is common, the representation as Ethiopian of African court servants um, throughout Europe. Uh, another very well-known example is, uh, is Ganibal, uh, Avram Petrovich Ganibal, uh, uh, who was ultimately adopted as Peter the Great's godson in um, St. Petersburg, and until about 20 years ago was believed to have been Ethiopian. Now the, the view has shifted and it's supposed that he um, was born in Cameroon. Um, all right, so uh, 
Amo went to Halle from Wolfenbüttel for his uh, university studies. He first studied Roman law, then he switched to, um, to uh, philosophy and then dabbled in medicine. The boundaries between the, the different um, faculties were very fluid um, in Halle at the time. Halle was also the headquarters of the Pietist mission, uh, which was, um, uh, uh, mostly focused on uh, one-upping the Jesuits in Eurasia, broadly speaking, both Muscovy significantly and also South, uh, South Asia and India with the Danish pietist mission. Um, it was also in general uh, a, a hotspot, um, indeed one of the earliest hotspots of what is recognizable as Orientalism. Um, and as a consequence, you had uh, people like Michaelis, uh, Johannes Michaelis, based there. Job Ludolf was actually at Frankfurt most of the, for most of his career, but also a frequent visitor to Halle. And there was constant traffic in and out of Halle of people who were, uh, let's say, linguistically useful, right, for learning Syriac, even for learning Malayalam uh, 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 from South Asia. And um, indeed, uh, for this is one of the places where we have the first, uh, we, the, one of the earliest um, uh, Latin translations of the Ethiopic uh, Psalter. Um, uh, and here is the um, the uh, 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 an image of it. Um, so this significantly shapes um, Amo's life, uh, and I, there are many different uh, dimensions of this that I could I could talk about. I don't want to go into too much detail about the Pietist mission, but it seems significantly to have shaped the early development of, uh, let's say, uh, uh, traditions of learning across Russia and in particular in St. Petersburg. So in this section, I'd like to consider some of the early um, uh, uh, scholarship on Zara Yaakov um, uh, from a trans-regional perspective, as I call it, um, and uh, here I'm drawing obviously on Sanjay Subramaniam, uh, uh, you know, who works on uh, uh, things like chess and courtly culture across Eurasia um, in order to establish uh, kind of uh, the ways in which there are patterns of culture across regions. And I would argue that the same thing could be, um, could be done of the history of philosophy and, um, and erudition more broadly. Um, now, uh, one uh, interesting figure I, th I keep coming back to as I'm trying to, uh, so to speak, read Zara Yaakov around the edges uh, is this figure, Dmitry Kantemir, who is a Moldovan prince um, uh, writing in uh, the early 18th century, uh, who writes mostly in Latin, but also in Greek and also in Russian. Um, and uh, he's, uh, his best known work is the Imago Indepingibilis, so the, the uh, un, 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 unpaintable image or something like that. Um, but he also writes a treatise um, 
uh, called The System or Constitution of the Mohammedan Religion, published in St. Petersburg in 1722, uh, which is in many respects um, uh, what we could call um, uh, uh, non-enlightenment um, kind of reckoning with the dynamics of interfaith existence, right? So he writes this from Constantinople, Istanbul, where he is at the court of the Sultan for many years. Um, and he is uh, kind of facing uh, the, um, the, the difficulty of um, kind of a, a, a world of people living in the same space uh, uh, while having different faith commitments. Um, but this is not, again, uh, an enlightenment text, I would argue, in that it's not, um, let's say, arguing for the carving out of a neutral or uh, secular public sphere um, that so to speak, Trump's faith, it is um, rather simply a, um, uh, 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 a reflection on the merits of the different faiths. Um, and then, you know, if you think about this in a, as an intergenerational process, Dmitri Kantemir's son, uh, Antioch Kantemir, is, um, uh, spends many years in Paris and is a good friend of Voltaire and Montesquieu and so on, and is, um, you know, like Voltaire, uh, uh, subventioned by Catherine the Great and is, um, uh, uh, kind of high enlightenment philosopher. So here you see a move from, let's say, rational, rational reflection within a religious tradition of his father to radical free thinking, uh, high enlightenment um, in the sun. Now to move on, um, St. Petersburg, where Dmitri Kantemir's treatise is published is uh, from the middle of the 19th century, a real hotbed of, um, of, of Orientalism of all sorts, um, including um, uh, uh, Ethiopic studies. And as we all know, uh, we have not just Littmann, who has been widely studied, but also Turayev's Russian translation of, uh, of the Hatata the same year. Love his eyebrows. Um, he's, a, he's a very important key, uh, key Russian Orientalist who really embodies um, the, so to speak, the St. Petersburg spirit. And we also have a lot of relatively understudied um, scholarship from St. Petersburg in the same era, including Krachkovsky. Uh, the title of this is Zara Jakob or Justo Durbino. Um, and he comes to the conclusion in 1924 uh, that the, um, the, the, the Zara Jakob treatise is uh, almost certainly a forgery, uh, while the Walda Haiwat is um, uh, almost certainly written by someone else, right? Um, and so there's, I think, untapped resources in the Russian language, including, um, uh, including uh, Turayev's uh, translation, uh, which um, I think uh, uh, gives us some insight, at least for me, not knowing Gaz, if I compare the Turayev uh, translation with the Litman translation, and I see Turayev's use, for example, of the phrase Svet Razuma, or the light of reason, um, as opposed to Litman's the light of intelligence, Lucem Intelligentiae, I'm much more prepared or pr primed by the Turayev 
of uh, translation than I am by the Littman translation to think of uh, Descartes' reguli, right? And um, uh, uh, to suppose that uh, uh, whoever wrote the Hatata is um, working in a tradition that is broadly speaking part of the same trans, trans regional circulation of ideas that swept Descartes up in the mix. So what is this trans, and you know, we, we can also, I, I'd love to come back to the question of the fact that the, 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 the what is it, the Libeta uh, root in Ethiopic uh, uh, the heart as much as the mind, because that, that suggests something very different than either the light of reason or the light of intelligence. Um, the light of the heart sounds very different. And I, I don't have much more time and I'd like to have some time for questions. And, you know, I wanted, I would like, or I would have liked to isolate some of the uh, tech, some of the parts of the the Zara Jacob text that seem particularly resonant uh, with Descartes' first meditation. I think the point where Descartes says, um, says that as insofar as he's a thinking thing, he's not his parent's child, uh, is uh, 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 a passage that is particularly ripe for, uh, for comparison. But maybe I can just conclude by saying, let's, let's suppose it's not a forgery. Let's suppose it is um, from the 17th century. And let's try to think of this in trans-regional perspective. Who might be circulating uh, ideas um, um, in uh, this broader transregional uh, domain, uh, such that in the 17th century, uh, someone in France and someone in Ethiopia uh, could both be using expressions like the light of reason. Um, it seems to me that the, uh, the go-to uh, tradition is, um, is the Jesuit tradition, and to some extent also Teresa of Avila, both of whom in the prior century, in the 16th century, are, um, are engaging in well-known spiritual exercises or meditations that clearly have a direct influence on Descartes' meditations, and that presumably also, if Zara Yaqub is a 17th century figure, and if he is um, significantly engaging with Jesuits, uh, then it should not be at all surprising surprising that France and Ethiopia, rather than being seen as two different worlds um, where, that, you know, ne'er the twain shall meet, they are rather both um, uh, kind of uh, within the broader uh, 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 domain of the diffusion of Iberian traditions uh, that began a century earlier, right? Now, I was going to... Um, uh, spell out for you some uh, uh, some of the um, uh, 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 kind of common points between uh, Iberian spiritual exercises and the Cartesian meditations of the sixteenth uh, uh, from the sixteenth to, to the seventeenth centuries, and then try to see how many of these um, uh, could also be extended to um, uh, to the Hatata. Here I'm drawing on uh, Christian Mercer's work on the relationship between Teresa of Avila and Descartes. Um, but I think I'll just leave those up there on the screen and, um, and, uh, and uh, conclude for now in order to leave time for questions. So thank you.